Thanks. Hey, everyone. Um, so I have taken the chance today to talk about something that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years, and that is uh, also the thesis of my upcoming book, Programming Design Systems. Um, and that thesis is um, that during this transition from static to digital design, um, design products has changed pretty drastically. The products we're, we're required to build have changed drastically. Um, so our tools must change too, and that touches both on design education and the design profession. So I'll talk a lot about that, um, but before doing that, I want to quickly introduce myself. I'm Rune Madsen. You can find me on Twitter. Um, and I usually, as they said, describe myself as equal parts designer, programmer, and artist. So I do all kinds of weird stuff in the intersection between computation and design. Uh, I do a lot of web design, a lot of web development, front and back. Um, and I do physical installation, data visualization, and uh, algorithmic design and like generative design prints. And I was at the New York Times. You heard all of that, so I'm going to skip that quickly. Um, I was at O'Reilly Media, where I did their new like digital brand. Uh, I was a creative director, first director of software development, a very technical position, and then creative director, a very like designy position, um, running a small team of designers and developers. But I want to talk about where I am today, uh, which is at New York University's Interactive Telecommunications Program, which is a really odd program that has existed for 35 years. So it's a new media program, 35 years old. Uh, and it's a program that accepts a very diverse crowd. So architects, designers, lawyers, dancers, musicians, and throw them into a two-year graduate program where they learn to program uh, and use electronics. and First of all, we're super proud that it's a technology program where everyone codes and it's 60% women. Uh, and um, I think the best way of describing this program is not so much from the student body and the faculty, but from this amazing one-day event that we have uh, each year called Stupid Shit No One Needs and Terrible Ideas Hackathon, which is a one-day event where participants conceptualize and create projects that have no value whatsoever. Um, and my two favorite projects from this is the non-ad blocker that blocks everything but ads on a page, a <laughs> uh, Chrome plugin, and Picnic, which is a Chrome plugin that uh, orders a random meal to a random location and Ubers you there. Um, but because it says something about the way that we approach technology at the program. It's not so much about the newest like front-end frameworks. It's about taking like uh, an overall look at technology and the impact to culture. Um, so what I want to talk about today is this question. Um, if I ask you to define the role of a graphic designer, what would you say? And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I think my answer would sound something like this. Um, traditionally, a graphic designer is someone who uses shape and color to communicate a piece of content on a static surface. And the word static surface um, might seem weird for those of you who work in web or in mobile uh, development or game design. But to understand that, we must look at the history of graphic design. This is a handsome gentleman, William Addison Dwiggins, who actually coined the term graphic design in the 1920s. And he was a craftsman, he was a printer, and he used the word to describe a new way of working with different kinds of typography and imagery to kind of convey meaning with the stuff that he printed. Um, and when we say graphic design, most people think about products like this, posters, business cards, printed matter. 
Um, and what's important to understand about these things is that uh, until the digital revolution, when I say design, it actually described much of the process of creating a thing. Design was everything from the blank canvas, the ideation, to creating a full replica of what, what was being sold to people. So uh, the production phase, the printing phase of making these static products was a minor, minor detail uh, to a big uh, design process. And obviously, as you all know, design products have changed pretty drastically over the last decade um, because we all spend a majority of our time now looking at screens instead of paper. Um, and it's important to say that digital products are not the same as printed products because digital products need to be shown at screens at different sizes. We all know responsive design. They have dynamic content. And most important of all, they allow users to interact with it. We can use motion, gestures, animation, um, moving away from the static product. Something I think a lot about is this idea of what happens when a very linear narrative, if you read a book, it's from A to B, what happens when that is replaced by a very complex set of states and transitions in a, in a piece of software and a system? Um, and what happens when systems become so complex that designers cannot sit down and make these one-off designs and put them in the system? And so we need to use code and programming languages to procedurally generate designs. This is a uh, automatic spaceship generator that I found uh, I think was really cool. Um, but so what I am writing about is that for a field that actually rooted in these in the fine arts, this has been a super difficult transition um, because the tools that we use are entirely modeled on processes that came before the computer. If you sit down in Sketch or Photoshop or Illustrator or any of the UI tools, um, everything on the left-hand side are things we did with our hands, like the crop tool, the marquee tool, the brush, brush tool. We have replicated in a digital environment, but um, it's all like based on the history of graphic design. And for graphic design education, I teach a lot. Um, that has caused huge problems because you have to figure out how do we teach these things. And what many, if not most, schools have opted to do is to teach this waterfall philosophy where we have the creatives over here, the designers, and we have the implementers and the technical people over here, and we teach a throw-it-over-the-wall principle where designers are come up with ideas and then let the technical people implement them. Um, and... Uh, I read a lot about graphic design, especially from the 50s and 60s. And here's a quote from Paul Rand, a famous uh, American graphic designer. He says, it's important to use your hands. This is what distinguishes you from a cow or a computer operator. And I mean, I, I agree with him, maybe not the equality sign between cow or a computer operator. Um, so uh, what I would argue is happening is that if this was what the world looked like once, we are seeing a world where the production phase is actually growing to be a really complex thing. And with digital, with apps and games and even websites that are still page-like or has the page metaphor, um, the guts of making the thing is in writing the software, feel like the transitions, the states, and the way it feels um, happens out of the realm of what traditionally design has been. And 
Uh, I'm often reminded about this comic. I'll give you a second to read it, if you can read it from there. So the idea here, as it says in the bottom, in computer science, it could be hard to explain the difference between the easy and the virtually impossible. And for those of you who have worked in teams that has a tight split between design and engineers, uh, this is how it can often feel. Um, so what I am doing a lot of research in is that these traditional graphic design tools are actually really bad at prototyping complex system, which is exactly the kind of products that were required to build today. Um, first of all, they enforce the page metaphor. So even though we don't have really have pages anymore, we have kind of squeezed the metaphor over web pages. But with games or any other thing, um, we are still forced to think in pages as designers. And second of all, um, they encourage us to think about form over content. I'm not sure how many of you work with data and data visualization, but the way I work with it, I sit down with a programming language and I spend hours parsing through the data, trying to find the story. And then the first then, I try to find the proper form to that story. And uh, that is kind of the true essence of design, finding the right form on, the, on your content. And if you sit down in Photoshop or Illustrator and look at the blank canvas, uh, it is completely detached to the data. So you're encouraged to think about form um, over content, and you end up with things like this, which are all, I think, examples of uh, people who would like to think in blue bubbles over actually conveying a message. And uh, I think most important of all, they discourage systematic thinking. So I, I almost called this talk the rant of the color on the color picker because it's unbelievable to me that designers still, uh, like 99% of all designers still operate with color composition using this uh, color picker. Because if you read about color theory and color composition, the way that you make color scenes and choose proper colors is in relation to each other. So just as an example, here's Paul Rand's design for, uh, for Jazzways. And these were not random decisions. This is, these are picked by placing a triangle on the color, color spectrum with a split complementary yellow color. Um, and that is like there's nothing in the color picker that tells the novice designer or the experienced designer that color composition is about manipulating this 3D space that color actually is. So if we define graphic design or digital design as just what you can make in these tools, if you take one of the most popular products of the last decade and a half, we are confined to choosing the color on the input field. And everything that Google.com is, the sophistication, the algorithm, the way it feels, might fall to UX, but it definitely falls a lot to engineering. Um, and so we have opted to, when we have this split between design and, and engineering, um, so we have started to use this term user experience, I think, as a way to glue those two things together. And the first glue is actually what traditionally was the designer's role, to find the proper size and position of content to convey things right to the user. Uh, but the second of all is about gluing these static pages from the designers together uh, to kind of 
uh, mock up this complex, complex relationship. And um, this still often happens in, in a static world where we use post-it notes or paper instead of actually prototyping in systems. Um, so I really like this quote by Father John Culkin speaking about Marshall McLuhan's work. Uh, we become what we behold, we shape our tools, and then our tools shape us. And this also happens in a really bad way where I think, I would argue, that we have confined digital design um, and we're actually getting a less and less bigger part of the pie. So if you follow this, this, these arguments to its natural conclusion, you end up with the idea that designers should be able to prototype and build digital systems. And there's kind of two parts to that. There is designers should learn to code. I am not one of those people who say everyone should code, but if designers learn to code, they can stop living in this land that is detached from the product. They can prototype the actual product. Um, and if they can code, we can reinvent design tools and make very custom personal design tools for each, each project. And I'll just briefly touch upon those two things. Um, but I think this, what has changed is uh, clearly stated in this quote by Donald Knuth, an American um, computer scientist, who says, meta design is much more difficult than design. It's easier to draw something than to explain how to draw it. However, once we have successfully explained how to draw something in a sufficiently general manner, the same explanation will work for related shapes in different circumstances. So the time spent in formulating a precise explanation turns out to be worth it. And I think this is exactly what we're seeing is happening right now in the digital revolution, that designers are being asked, they used to be something where they just made a drawing and could draw something, but they're now being asked to create systems that can draw something. And it's a step back, and it's a much more meta way of thinking about the design profession. Um, so briefly on my book. Um, so I have thought a lot about how to teach designers how to code, and not so much like web-specific. I know many of you work with web, but I mean, as a general way, what happens when we introduce programming as a tool? Um, I am writing this book called Programming Design Systems, and I'll do a spiel about it at the end, so I'll give you the website. Um, but it starts with this question. What happens when we redefine the graphic design curriculum using a programming language as a tool for the designer? Um, and it's actually been inspired by a class I've been teaching for the last five years at uh, New York University uh, called Programming Design Systems. And it's a very traditional graphic design class where the students, we learn about form, color, typography, grid systems. And then the students, instead of going home and creating a design in Photoshop or Illustrator, they go home and write a piece of software that produces a design or many designs. They go and print it, and then they come to class uh, to get design critique. And one big emphasis on, uh, in this class is teaching that systems has always been a part of graphic design. This is two books from the Swiss design era in the 70s by uh, Joseph Müller-Brockmann and Carl Gassner. And uh, even stuff when we say like data visualization, this like people have been thinking about these things for decades, if not centuries. Um, this is the Graphics Diagrams books from book from 1971, which looks a lot of like what people are doing on the web today. And the first thing I tell my students when they come in class is, um, here is a traditional graphic design product on the left. It's made by Paul Rand. There is a simple system to this poster. 
It is a repetition of heart. They are evenly hearts. They are evenly spaced. One is highlighted in red. One is replaced by a title. On the right-hand side, I have the same poster implemented in code. It took me half an hour. Uh, but once we have implemented a design system in code, we are no longer bound to this manual process of tweaking things by hand, but we can explore the, the, the bounds of the design and code by introducing randomization and so on. Um, so just this very simple example for a poster uh, talks to this idea of not only like teaching designers to code to make apps, but also teaching designers to code to enhance their own design process which I think is really important. And the work that the students do is everything from basic generative design. So this is a printed, uh, a final from a couple of years back by Sarah Halliger and Alessandro Villamil, who did uh, a generative design for a NASA space expedition, where every time the software runs, it would look different. Um, we have one of my favorite projects by Adria Navarro, who did a card game with generative characters. So instead of designing these by hand, he wrote an algorithm that can generate endless amount of characters, which is exactly the type of procedural design I'm talking about. And then this funny little thing, the automatic tie generator, which is done by Patrick Muth, so he could um, create ties for all his sneakers with the same color scheme. So um, so I'm, I'm writing a book about this, which I'll talk about in a second. But the, the second part of this idea of um, designers entering the realm of algorithms and programming languages is that it really frees you from the bounds of the static tools. So this is a logo that probably most of you have seen. It's done by Sackmeister and Walsh in New York. And it's a logo for a music hall in Portugal where instead of sitting down and designing a logo and giving a vector file to the company, they wrote a piece of software and gave it to the company. So now they can, for every event, load in an image and generate a unique logo for every event. So we're talking about uh, design tools not being this thing that Adobe makes that everyone has to use, but design tools being something that is very like fun and casual and throw away and that you actually create your own personal design tools for every creative process, which I think is really, really interesting. And just last week, we, we started a new research group at ITP. It um, talks specifically about it, the intersection between design tools and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Um, and the idea then is related to this, which is when you look at a tool like Photoshop, the entire burden of use is on you as a user. And if you think about it, there's actually two burdens of use. There is one, you need to know about composition and design, and then you need to know how these things are implemented in that tool. And that second thing is actually rather useless because it's not portable from tool to tool, maybe from Photoshop to Sketch, but not from Sketch to 3D Max or Blender. And I think that is highly problematic. So our group investigates how can we use machine intelligence to, to actually help users being guided through the design process. And I teach this, um, uh, I do this research group with a fellow researcher called Patrick Hepron, who's doing some really interesting stuff. Um, he made this uh, prototype um, programming language called FOIL, which is, has a full IDE and code editor and graphical output. 
Um, but the idea is that every designer would sit down and use this to create design tools that are smart and intelligent. And as a small example, uh, he has this thing where you can just on the right-hand side create objects and it will automatically suggest all variations between these objects. And that starts a selection process where you can just click the ones you want and it'll regenerate a new generation of objects. And that can be used for both 2D and 3D design. And there's a lot of other really cool stuff he does with, he has a background in film studies. So how can you do 3D modeling um, in VR by just talking to the computer and say, and because he has this mapping, intelligent mapping between all objects, you can say like, give me a chair. No, maybe make it look a little more comfortable. Uh, make it look more like a plant because it has a real, it's just really interesting. Um, and if you're interested in this, he wrote this uh, report for O'Reilly Media called Machine Learning for Designers that you can get for free online. And I highly encourage you to read it. So speaking about design tools, um, we are beginning to see some domain-specific design tools. I get this question a lot, like what kind of tools are you talking about? Um, and here is one, it's called RoboFont. And I took this quote directly from the front page of um, robofont.com. The tools you choose influence your creative process. Because of this, RoboFont provides many opportunities for the user to tailor the application to their design process. So it is a editor for making typefaces, uh, but it is fully extendable and scriptable, which means that the idea is the designer would sit down and actually create their own typeface editing tool for each typeface that they're creating. And also this Metapolator tool, built on actually Donald Knuth's Metafont project, if you know about that, um, where typefaces are not created by neatly putting the outline of the typeface, but rather from internal strokes of the typeface. And when you do that, you can algorithmically change, easily change like the slant and the curviness and the boldness and such a font. Um, so they become dynamic. And all the other stuff that I really like are like small, silly throwaway tools. This is a uh, Muke cartographer that I bought for five bucks online, which is this uh, generative design tool for making landscapes. And it's just like really si silly but powerful. And you can imagine this being something created not for public consumption, but for a design process for a specific project. Um, so yeah, to conclude, there is this, we have this century long bond between designers and new advances in technology. And just because we started with the printing press and our workflow was static doesn't mean that we need to evolve as new tools come to age. And we have the ability now to write code that produces really beautiful designs and dynamic systems. And I would argue that the designer of the future uh, will have to deliver on that promise. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm currently writing this book. It's called Programming Design Systems. And it is like my class, an introduction to graphic design, but instead of using a tool, it uses a programming language. So there is an introduction and so on, and I'm actually at the fourth chapter now, and I'm publishing it for free online every week, and I have a mailing list um, that you can subscribe to on programmingdesignsystems.com if you're interested. And that mailing li list is also interesting if you're 
if you're interested in this type of stuff, because I give um, out weekly re uh, reading recommendations, like this graphic design magazine from South Korea that just came out with an amazing edition about uh, computational design. Um, and if you're interested, come and talk to me. I would love to chat to you. I'm also Rune Madsen on Twitter. That's my website, and that's my email. So thanks so much.